0: What's up, Mets Up listeners? We're back here for episode number 30 of the Mets Up podcast. Of course, I'm your co-host, DraftNeck Mark, here with James Sciano Jeter Had No Range, talking about the series that just wrapped up earlier tonight against the Milwaukee Brewers. Mets took two of three in the series, could have very easily been a sweep, but as we know, the Mets have an inability to close out series and get sweeps. Funny enough, with this episode, we actually went like five minutes before realizing that James didn't hit the record button, so hey, listen, second time, third time's the charm, whatever it is here, we got the intro, we're going. You know where to follow us, on Twitter and Instagram, at messed up on YouTube, messed up Podcast, we're uploading videos again, so subscribe to us over there if you like video form content, and make sure, if you are listening to us, you're following us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and James just literally caught a mosquito live on Zoom while we're watching this, so if you're on the YouTube channel and watching, you're going to see James actually catch a mosquito like Mr. Miyagi. I can't think of a better way to lead you in here.
1: How you doing, my guy? You just caught a mosquito. I'm doing great, besides the fact that it just ruined like a pristine start to the episode. of us. glad I caught it when I did, but you know what? Catching that mosquito, they got me right back on track. I'm ready to go. It could have been catastrophic, but catching a mosquito, Mets still win the series against
0: one of the hottest teams in baseball. We beat two aces, two of the better pitchers in baseball mm-hmm. this season. This team has kind of changed a little bit. It's a little depressing Game 3, but a really, really good series win, I think, nonetheless.
1: Definitely. Someone had the take on Twitter that if we would have just flipped this series and gotten shut out and lost Game 1 and then beaten Brandon Woodruff and Corbin Burns back-to-back games to win, Mets fans would have been, like, singing our praises. It's been a World Series parade coming down after this series. So, a little perspective, a little positivity, a little optimism. I think we're going to give that this episode, because I'm feeling great about the Mets right now. I'm
0: feeling really good. There's still a few things to talk about that would be on the you know cautionary side, like Miguel Castro or what happened with Diaz. But for the most part, things are good in New York Mets land. I don't have many complaints. We beat the Brewers, literally one of the hottest teams coming into the series. I think they won, like, what, 10 of their last 11, 11 before in a row, playing one us? Yeah, so they have been scalding hot, and we beat their two best pitchers. So, again, the narrative that Mets can't beat good teams is just beating a dead horse it's just not true at all anymore. So, let's talk about game 1 here. That was, you know, of course we got the series started. We went up against Brandon Woodruff and this offense while it played well against the Yankees, we hadn't really seen a pitcher of quality of Brandon Woodruff cuz Garrett Cole is not Brandon Woodruff right now, especially without the sticky stuff. Woodruff as you have said many of times is a top 2 pitcher in the league in your eyes, top 5 I think is really fair, and he was dominant the first, you know, first time around the order.
1: No, the bets. He was literally perfect for the innings. The Mets couldn't muster up anything against Woodruff, and I think the thing that kind of sets Woodruff apart. Where I'm going to pull this joke from my last intro because I liked it, is that how, how like imposing he is as a force on the mound. Like you don't really see pitchers who look like Brandon Woodruff anymore. He feels like a throwback to me. He's got like big shoulders, a big beard, like thighs. Like the guy is strong, and he lets you know it. He's a dude who gets
0: big from lifting hay bales and working manual labor on the farm, plowing fields. Like this is a dude who is a country strong. He's a country big. He's
1: a large human. Definitely, if Brandon Woodruff just like switched up his off season uh, workout regimen, I feel like he could just play tackle, like in the CFL, the XFL, or something, and he would be damn good at it. That's a dude who could be, like, a, a nice guard from the University of Iowa, in my eyes. Like, he's got the beard and everything. He could be, like, a, the ba- the blocking tight end. The second tight end, who all he likes to do is get downfield and just be mean. Like, that's Brandon Woodruff. And he was yeah. very mean the first time through the order against the Mets. He was literally perfect against us. I had to put out the tweet, because I was like, this dude's got
0: perfect game stuff tonight. Like, I gotta jinx this dude as any way I can. And luckily... It worked, sort of. I mean, it didn't actually do anything, but it worked.
1: I didn't even know you did that, because I sent out a jinxing Woodruff tweet as well. Oh, yeah. We, I, we both knew that the, uh, we had to throw some whammies on him because he was too good. Naturally. This offense wasn't going to get going without us. No, of course not. Everyone
0: knows that the messed up podcast boys have a direct impact on the performance by the New York Mets on the field. Of course. Absolutely. But let's talk about what happened here. Woodruff, first time through the order again. Perfect. And then the fourth inning kind of got a little gut punch here. Tyler McGill, by the way, Very good game, and I know you're going to go into McGill stats and everything because he really is so impressive. But he gave up the home run to Omar Mm Nervaez. A little bit of a gut punch because you said, ooh, I think one run run might win this game, Mm -hmm. the way Brandon Woodruff is pitching. Mm -hmm. But then the Mets responded immediately, and our guy Brandon Nimmo, who seemingly, since he's been in the lineup, the Mets actually know how to score runs. And what do you know? Hit a double. We got a
1: weird bunt from Francisco Lindor, which we'll talk about. Dom Sack Fly, we generated a run. Dude, the Lindor bunting stuff is becoming weird. Like, there were those weird comments made by Rojas after the game that he specifically, like, I told him I don't want him to do that, and Lindor is doing it on his own because he wants this, it seems like he wants to proliferate this team aspect of the game and get more people involved and sacrifice himself so someone else can pick him up, but I don't think that's really true at all of the sacrifice bunt in the fourth inning. I'm going to
0: say a hot take here, and I don't think Francisco Lindor is this kind of player, but a sacrifice bunt in that situation is almost selfish and here's why this is a weird this is going to be a weird spin zone but i think francisco lindor's mind is in the right spot of like i'm going to sacrifice bunt because i want to help the team like you said pushing this team you know agenda pushing this team narrative but that sacrifice bunt is like a safe way to try and make something happen where francisco lindor's hitting two, he's not there to bunt he's getting paid 330 40 million dollars whatever he's supposed to get i don't ever remember the exact number but he's a 300 million dollar man He's a good hitter. He's been hitting well. The bunt feels like almost a cop-out for him to say that he contributed without having the liability of, I struck out in this snare or I didn't get the runner over because really all Francis all Francisco Lindor has to do up as a left-handed hitter is pull a ball on the ground. It does the exact same thing. He doesn't actually go like 0 for 1 even, so I guess the sacrifice helps a little bit more or he can hit a fly ball to the outfield, because Nimmo's on second, he's scoring on any deep fly, or he's going to third on any deep fly ball, and he also still has the opportunity to get a hit and drive him in. We talk about this all the time, you can't just really give away free outs, especially early in the game, which was like super weird, it wasn't the seventh, it wasn't the eighth, it wasn't the ninth, it was the fourth. Francisco Lindor's got to swing the bat there, it ended up not mattering, but this is something that is now happening multiple times, on multiple occasions, where Francisco Lindor is choosing to bunt on his own, in RBI scenarios and scenarios where you thought he'd be up there swinging the bat trying to drive in a run.
1: Dude, absolutely. And you mentioned specifically that Lindor has been playing well. This was the only out he made on Monday. He got a hit and he drew two walks. That was it. So for him to take the bat out of his own hands in a situation where We need more than one run. Like It's the fourth inning of a one-run game. There's no reason to be sacrificing an out that early, especially against a guy who's very clearly dealing. Why are we giving Brandon Woodruff an out? He's good enough at getting those on his own. There's no reason we should be handing him one. I get that it did work in retrospect that he moved Brandon Nimmo from second to third, and Dominic Smith immediately drove him in with another sacrifice, but you almost are telling everyone that you're content with scoring one run and ending with a leadoff double with the heart of the order coming up. And now I guess that looked kind of foolish tonight because we saw the heart of the order all strike out with the bases loaded, nobody out. But we'll talk about that probably in like 20-ish minutes. I think maybe it's a confidence thing with Lindor. Maybe, like, I don't know how I'm supposed to phrase this, but did the booze get to him where he doesn't want to screw something up? But we're living in a world where Francisco Lindor has the second most sacrifice bunts in all of baseball behind only David Fletcher. And that's, a, like, David Fletcher, the meme and everything, but he's not a good player. No, Dave, Dave Fletcher should be sacrificed bunting if he's hitting, like, because the Angels still hit him at the top of that order. Which is insane, because Joe Madden doesn't understand how baseball works anymore. Yeah, but. well, Dave, Joe Madden's whole thing is like, uh, you're struggling, hit a leadoff. And Dave Fletcher was struggling for a while, so he hit him leadoff. And if someone the bottom of the Angels order finds their way to first or second base, I would also bunt with Shohei Otani, Mike Trout, and Anthony Rendon behind me. But that's not the situation with the Mets. Francisco Lindor, you could argue, is our best RBI threat.
0: He's definitely one of the best. Like, this is a guy you want to see swinging the bat. He's He's got to swing the bat more. He's got to be more aggressive in that scenario. He's he's actually playing well since May 31st, which has been all over Twitter. Like, he's essentially back to his slash line of old, which is like that 840 OPS, 270 average, 340 on base. Like, that's the Lindor player that we all thought we were getting and expecting. But this bunt, man, it's it's a weird narrative because there's not a whole lot of narratives in these games that happened. But this is something that I think has to be talked about because Rojas has been very openly against it. Baseball's openly against it. Lindor has to stop.
1: I, again, it's like the weirdly not actually selfish, but it is thing. It's also weird because Lindor a couple times has specifically mentioned that he doesn't really love analytics in baseball. He doesn't really like, like the information. Not that he necessarily does or does not believe in it because I don't think he's ever said that specifically. But he talks about how much he doesn't like the shift. He says, I make great plays without the shift. Maybe this is him like doing a little bit of... Like civil disobedience with the team, showing that he is his own guy. It's kind of like blazing his own path, which is a little bit troubling in the first year of a 10-year commitment, but especially when Luis Rojas is coming out publicly saying he doesn't like it or he's not calling for it, this is not coming from the managers, coming from Francisco, it's definitely something to keep an eye on moving forward, but we're talking a lot about bunting. The story of game one was Tyler McGill going toe-to-toe with Brandon Woodruff, the guy who I've called one of the best pitchers in baseball, bona fide top five dude, along with like Wheeler, Burns. I don't even know who else in that top five besides the Hard, Not not the point right now. But damn, this guy is a beast. He's really a beast. I think he's actually a major league pitcher at this point.
0: He has solidified himself in this rotation, I think, for the rest of the year, the way he's pitching right now. I don't know how you take him out when guys start to come back unless it's Carrasco and Syndergaard. And even then, McGill goes to the bullpen because we have some guys that are struggling in the bullpen now that might see a little less time. We'll get to that as the episode goes on, but his fastball really good. He he spots it up. He's got good command of that fastball, and one pitch that you texted me about is that changeup that wasn't getting a lot of
1: press but looks like a really nice pitch. I have no idea where these scattering reports came from about McGill's changeup. I really don't watching him pitch, it actually appears to be his best pitch. And by the Stuff Plus metric, which was developed by Ethan Moore from The Athletic, who now works for the Twins, and has continued to be worked on by Eno Saris, we've talked about many times in this podcast, and someone named Max Bay, who's a very talented data scientist, his changeup actually grades out as his best pitch. And it's well above average in terms of other changeups in the league. And the slider's second, the fastball actually turns out is third, which almost makes me think that, he still has another rung to climb because he's throwing 60% of the fastball still. The changeup alone got more whiffs than Brandon Woodruff got this game. That's crazy. Yeah, McGill McGill more than doubled the whiffs overall with all of his pitches together. And like, holy shit, is this changeup so good? It had eight whiffs on 15 swings. It's over 50% whiffs on the year. There was one at-bat with Jelic. I don't know if it was the third inning or the first inning. It was one of the first two at-bats where he got them on back-to-back changeups in the same spot and made them look like a fool. I put it on Twitter the next day because I was like still so enamored by it. And the fact that McGill is a righty, who was a fastball slider guy, and he's able, just in his first like sip of, cup of coffee of the major leagues, to use this slider against not only lefties, but one of the best left-handed hitters in this game, who doesn't swing it. Well, now he swings more pitches out of strike zone. But he has, Christian Yelich has incredible play discipline. And Tyler McGill's changeup made him look like a damn fool.
0: Yeah, no, Tyler McGill, and like, having that changeup be so good also makes that fastball, which you said is, might be the third worst pitch, look more effective because now you've got to watch out for this changeup. And as you know, you got that changeup, the fastball becomes even more effective. So this is a dude who I'm really glad got aggressively pushed up this mm-hmm. year. As we said, he didn't make a start above double A before the year started. No, single and A. And tr- yeah, he has turned into a really nice piece. This is reminding me of the impact that like, Lugo and Gaselman had in the 2016 season mm-hmm. where the Mets like, just need some starting pitching. They got guys up who were kind of aggressive again with Gaselman and Lugo, and they came up and had an impact. I think McGill's going to be better than those guys in starting pitching form. Obviously, Lugo as a reliever, one of the best in baseball. But as a starting pitcher, like, this is going to be a guy who could be a part of this
1: rotation. He's a legit arm. He's very much a legit arm, and I did say that the fastball is like has graded as his worst pitch. And I mentioned it last episode that doesn't really have the ride I expected it to have, but it still sits ninety-five. He's touching ninety-seven every single time out. He's dotting that pitch everywhere. He was getting called strikes left and right because those two breaking balls, those two off-speed pitches, seem so prolific. That fastball, even as sitting at sixty percent, it's still catching hitters off guard. You don't see that for many guys in the league besides someone like a Jacob Degrom or like a Brandon Woodruff. And on top of all this, Tyler McGill has so much goddamn swagger. He, he is a cocky oh motherfucker. Oh my god, he was pounding his chest. He was strutting around the mound. Pitcher, uh, pitching ninja, Shadow him out a few times. Like we've got, we've got a lot going on. He's got some moxie. He's got some
0: bravado about him. That's moxie. like for such a for, for such a young dude who's like making his first three starts. He's got confidence out his ass. It's nuts, and I love that because it's not like it's not bad. It's not arrogance. It's confidence. Yes, it is. It's swag it's swag and the Mets, Mets need a little swag every once in a while. So I like it, especially like our four starters going to have swag. Our five starters are going to have swag. I love that. I'm all in and having Hefner around him and Jacob deGrom and Stroman and Walker and all these guys. I feel like he can only get even better and I'm excited to see where he goes.
1: I honestly agree with that. I, before we get to back to the offense, I just want to talk some more about the pitching because my guy is Aaron loop underrated really. Good. Holy crap. This guy's good. Really, really good. Where did it even come from? Like, he was always, like, fine. He was kind of funky, and we talked about him in the offseason. we like, yeah, we need a guy with a different arm angle. But fucking hell, this guy's incredible. Aaron Lube has the second lowest FIP of any left-handed pitcher in baseball. Do you know who has the lowest by any chance? Is it Josh Ader? It sure is. Yeah. And that's not even what today's stats baked in. He gave up a home run today, first time all season. So that could be that could be changed now. But fuck is he good. Damn.
0: He's picked up some really, really big outs for us. And in Game 2, would have liked to have seen him come in at one point. But we'll talk about that a little bit later. Loop had a rep until the Rays of just not very good. Mm -hmm. He was not very good. Went to the Rays. They fixed something. We got him. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Tampa Bay Rays, for fixing him. And now Jeremy Hefner, sprinkle a little of that magic dust on him. And this dude is
1: really, really good. Like, that cutter is a sick pitch. It's incredible. It's like borderline unhittable at times. When he has the cutter working... Against right-hand, righties and lefties, it's unbelievable how well he can command that pitch on both sides of the plate. Sticking with relievers, whose last name starts with L, and contain four leathers, Seth Lugo, still incredible. Really, really good.
0: He's just, it's like so unfair to have a guy who has like the four or five pitches like Lugo has with the stuff that he has, who can then just come out for an inning or two and use 120% effort.
1: Yeah, it's just so cool that... When a guy was originally a starter, most of these relievers were starters, but he is so like aware of his role now that he can channel that and be just unhittable for a period of time. I also want to point out that Seth Lugo now has the highest RPMs of any curveball in baseball. So life after sticky yeah. stuff, we still have the king. Of course, because Seth Lugo is that guy. Uh-huh. He's that dude. He really is that dude. He He has swag too. I love Lugo.
0: And this all led into the seventh inning rally, Mm -hmm. where the Mets got to Woodruff. And I think one thing that was really interesting this inning is the Mets were super aggressive. Because Woodruff, to this point, had like 60 or 50 pitches, I think, at the time. He started this
1: uh, inning, I think, 64, 65. Yeah.
0: So he was on track for a complete game, Mm -hmm. 100%. And the Mets seemed like they ditched the whole patient, wait for your pitch, like, whole mantra that the Mets have been doing all year. And they jumped on him. They jumped on him. But
1: this rally actually started with a walk. And the opposite of the patience, Lindor got a pitch like I think it was like his like weird sinker two seamer that Woodruff throws right down the dick. He fouled it off, and then he got four pitches on the edges. I think one was a little bit low, but it was like two just barely outside, one that was low, and then the three one pitch that like nicked the inside core. There, but he did the whoop thing where he yeah. took his ass out of the way and he got the walk, and that that ignited the whole rally because then Dom hit the a single, and then Pete bang bullet to take the lead, smoked it, mm-hmm. and it was good to see Pete get a hit off them because. I mean, like, Brandon Woodruff is a dude who, in theory, should
0: carve up Pete Alonso. He's got a really good fastball, and as we know, Pete can't touch a ball above his belt. There's no reason to ever throw him a pitch low in, the, low in the zone, and luckily for us, Pete took advantage.
1: Yeah, and it was nice to see Conforto actually get a hit and provide some insurance. It was. Even though he's shown no signs of life besides that bat the rest of the series. Yeah, Conforto is...
0: I don't know. Like I think, or uh, Gary mentioned it on the broadcast today, that Brandon Nimmo told the Mets the reason it took him so long to come back was that he told the Mets I'm not ready yet like I feel physically fine but my baseball like game readiness is not there yet he waited and what do you know Brandon Nemo has jumped right back into this lineup as one of the best offensive players on the team where Michael Conforto who maybe got rushed back a little bit. and
1: big, McNeil I would put him in that and too. McNeil
0: who maybe got rushed back a little bit haven't yet clicked like they should be
1: yeah that's a good point honestly that, that's like that's probably is what is happening here. And- That's a shame, but again, at least he came through here, came through here. At least, yeah, he came through for us, and luckily for us, they left in Woodruff just a little too long, which I thought was interesting. I thought that they would have pulled him sooner. Especially because, like, while he was mowing us down, like, I mentioned before, there were no whiffs happening. It's one of his low whiff games of the entire season. He had nine whiffs the whole game. Only two other starts this year he had, that many or fewer. And the Mets, as a team, only had six strikeouts the entire game. That's so rare for not only the Mets, but any team in baseball. So it did feel like a matter of, I don't want to say it a matter of time, because I didn't think we were going to get to him, just because I'm so negative about this offense after watching it this year. But it was nice to see the ball hit the ground a few times, and it happened. It was. And we even, like,
0: you know, started to hit the ball a little bit in the eighth. Granted, it wasn't off Woodruff. Mm-hmm. But we were smacking around a little bit there, too, mm-hmm. which was nice to see. Although, Pete, big double play, because okay. Pete loves a good hard ground ball sometimes right to the shortstop. and. You know, it's going to happen with Pete. That's what you get. He cashed
1: it in the inning before.
0: I'm okay with it. Yeah, exactly. Overall, though, Mets, big win. This was a game that you thought at the beginning was going to be just a loss. Mm -hmm. And the Mets ended up winning. Now, there was a little bit of uh, hysteria in the ninth inning as Edwin Diaz came in and made it really, really interesting. Yeah, a little sweaty. I was not feeling comfortable with this. He
1: came in and immediately struggled. Yeah, This has been a habit of Edwin not including the second game of Wednesday's doubleheader, but the few outings before where he just doesn't have this peak control immediately. And I think, didn't he walk the first guy or hit a batter?
0: I, I think he hit a guy, walked a guy. Like, it was a very, very sloppy inning. He got ahead on, like, uh, Tyrone Taylor, I think, and ended up walking him. What a name, uh, Tyrone and, Taylor.
1: Uh, sick name. It's crazy.
0: It's a very, very strong name. Unfortunately, play-wise, he's okay. He's fine. Yeah. Strong name. Yeah. But... Diaz in the past has always been a guy that wants to throw a lot, too, and he was coming off five days rest, mm-hmm. so it did seem like he just needed a little bit of time to get back into the rhythm of things. Mm-hmm. He got it done, though. He did. It,
1: it was real interesting, but he got it done. It worked. Like, thank God it wasn't a one-run game could that sure. in, insurance back and forth was everything. But it worked. It happened. Yeah, I mean,
0: at the end of the day, the Mets won this one as much as Edwin made us uncomfortable, and we got flashbacks to old Edwin a little bit of like, oh, here we go again. Is this it? No, he got it done. Which leads us now to game two, mm-hmm. feeling good off the Brandon Woodruff win, where we got our weird doubleheader that, let's just go through what happened yesterday, mm-hmm. because me, James, and our friend Ernie, big Jonathan VR fan, of course, yeah, loves him. we were supposed to be going to the Mets Brewers game on, what was that, T- Tuesday. Tuesday, on Tuesday, and we hopped in an Uber, mm-hmm. within five seconds, we start looking at Twitter, like, there's going to be a delay, so we're like, hey, Uber guy, uh, we're done here, you got to <laughs> drop us off, so luckily he let us out. We got out of the we're red like, light, like,
1: three blocks away from where he picked us up. <laughs>
0: Yeah, like literally just like did like a little half circle. And then we were
1: around the corner about,
0: yeah, about to get on the highway. And we're like, all right, we're going to go to the bar. We're going to hang out. The rain's going to blow over. We're looking at like a 9 to 10 o'clock start somewhere in that time. We got to the bar. We're having some drinks, played a little trivia. We didn't think we were going to finish the game of trivia, but we ended up doing it. Fifth out of ninth. Buzz Lightyear. We did okay. First time ever. But we were so amped to be mm-hmm. like one of like two to three hundred people in the stadium because the Mets and everybody on Twitter was like, Mets are determined to get this game and they want the ground to ground the pitch. They're gonna do it, whatever it takes. And then at like nine thirty, they were like, No, we can't play. And it, it ended up being the right move because it just continued to like monsoon in nor'easter over here, the wind, the rain, it was
1: unbelievable. Mm-hmm. But boy was that a letdown, which then led into our doubleheader. Of today. We are just so close to having a legendary Tuesday night. It turned out to be an okay Tuesday, but it was so close to being one of those crazy things that would have happened in Mets history that we could have talked about forever. And,
0: like, being in Queens, we have, like, the affordability to be like ah it's 10 minutes to get to city field like we can wait around literally all night and head over in 10 minutes it's not that big of a deal almost almost happened we'll get one at some point I'm sure of it I'm determined to get a rain out 10 o'clock start that I'm at but game two got moved to today of course Wednesday where we got the double header so we got two seven inning games Corbin Burns now going up against Jacob DeGrom a lot different than you know the ace that is Brett Anderson going up against DeGrom this switch up scared you a lot Scared me a lot because I was like, "Oh, hey, (laughs) that's going to be a tough game to win." Because Corbin Burns, as we said with Woodruff, is one of the better pitchers in baseball. The dude had 58 strikeouts without a walk to start the Mm -hmm. year, and that's not because he's like, you know, getting two or three strikeouts a game and like he's just a control pitcher. No, he just has nasty stuff and was dominating people, and he kind of dominated the Mets a little bit to start. I know the first thing we got a run.
1: But it was, the Mets weren't really hitting that well against them early. I mean, I think that we should have gotten more runs in that first inning. Between the double, the bloop single, and then Dom, did he hit a single? Did he walked.
0: Dom had the terrible at-bat where he faked the sack oh, yeah, like, like, with one strike. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, that's what happened, yeah. But the fact that we were two batters into a game where we were down by one run and had a run off Corbin Burns, I was like, oh, this is great. We're going to move off him. And we did not. And There was no moving. No, and then, yeah, Corbin Burns went back to being Corbin Burns for a little bit stymied the
0: offense for a few and Jacob deGrom weird weird start for him I mean he was still awesome of course because I don't think you're ever going to see this guy really be bad by any means or even okay he gave up that weird home run to Luis Arias to lead off the game and then he gave up the home run to who who was it Jace oh friggin' Jace Peterson that dude Oh, I hate Jace Peterson. That guy goes back to killing the Mets from like 2011 and 2012 when he was like a young up-and-coming Braves prospect that had no business being anywhere on this on the field with the Mets. But he hit that home run. He was still good to Grom today. It was just, again, like he's a very scheduled guy, as we've said in the past. And it seems like whenever he is not exactly to that schedule, there will be a rough patch, albeit two batters, yeah,
1: literally two batters. But there's just, like, a little glimpse of him being a human sometimes. Yeah, and this is now the third consecutive start where he seemed to just be, like, slightly off. Like you said, like, he's a scheduled guy. He's very regimented. The fact that he probably did prepare as if he was starting yesterday, threw his full ball pen, stayed loose until about 9, 15 p.m., and then had to turn around immediately start the game at 2 o'clock today. I'm sure it threw him off a little bit, again, for being so freaking regimented. But he was still, like, dominant when he became dominant. He didn't throw more than 17 pitches in any inning today. That's very good. That's incredible. It did take him four innings to reach, like, peak Gram, which is, like, he didn't throw 100 miles an hour without a roundup until the fourth inning. And he still only gave up four hits in seven innings. Of course, two of those were solo home runs. But he still only gave up four hits in seven innings. Like, damn. Like, he's so good. Even when he's not his best, he's by far the best pitcher in baseball.
0: What's crazy is in between those two home runs, he got every single batter out consecutive. Yeah, I think it was, like, 11 he went, like, in a 13 row. in a row. Yeah. yeah. So, like, he just doesn't make sense sometimes because – even when he doesn't have it, he's still so good, like you just said. Mm-hmm.
1: But the one troubling thing is that this is now consecutive first innings where he hasn't found the fastball, which is not that cool because we are like pretty close to that stretch where he retired, I believe, it was thirty-one consecutive batters in the first inning. So it seems like something about his routine is maybe a little bit off. There's some type, there's some lack of comfortability for Jacob Degrom early. Again, this could just be the fact that today was a day game after what was like a late night, or last week in Atlanta, he just, the top of that Atlanta order is just very dominant. There's something maybe there, something to possibly keep an eye on. I don't know what's going to happen. And again, as bad as it felt, it was still 10 strikeouts in seven innings with two runs and four yeah. hits. No, he still had a fantastic His game. ERA just barely snuck up over one, like the horror. Yeah,
0: which, you know, that was terrifying. Jacob DeGrama, 1.0, what is it, 1.01? He was 1.05. what a a bad year for Jacob
1: deGrom. Bob Gibson turnover in his grave.
0: Yeah. Yeah, Even in his bad days, he's still so good and gives us a chance to beat
1: one of the best pitchers in baseball. I was literally just about to say that. Like, Jacob deGrom, we said, struggled today. A sports center would have said Jacob deGrom struggled. And he went toe-to-toe with one of the top ten pitchers, I'd say, in baseball. Arguably top seven, top five. And bested him in a day where he didn't have his best stuff. But, again, Corbin Burton's also sick. And it's just been pissing me off that whenever a guy's, like, spin rates drop, everyone's, like, spider tag merchant, sticky stuff merchant. Like, this guy's terrible now. Corbin Burton still has, like, a 32% K rate since the sticky stuff enforcement has begun. Like, sure, he may have gotten worse and his spin rates may have dropped. But this was always a crazy spin rate guy, going as far back to, like, when he was in AA. That's how he was even noticed as a prospect, especially early on in the fantasy baseball circles. The guy is still good. Guys can lose access to sticky stuff and still be very good. There's never, they're not all Garrett Cole. No. Like we, these guys know how to pitch, unlike Garrett Cole. There's something there. Garrett Cole
0: went from being like, he should be good, let's cheat, oh, he is good, back to being not very good anymore because he can't cheat. Like you said, Corbin Burns, from the day that he was found as a baseball player, this is what intrigued the Brewers, mm-hmm. the spin rate stuff. It's getting to be a really old narrative that every... I like I hate it. I hate Twitter yeah, when so every tired. single time a pitcher gives up a home run or struggles, sticky stuff, sticky stuff, sticky stuff merchant. Everyone's trying to be the next investigative reporter and break the news of who's using sticky stuff. Guys, here's the breaking news. Every pitcher used some sort of sticky stuff in Major League Baseball. The numbers show it. The spin rates around the league, every team, every player, down. There's no one who's getting better spin
1: rates since that thing's happened. So... Like, enough. It's crazy how many people have discovered Baseball Savant in the last month. Like, their traffic must be off the fucking charts right now. But even
0: then, people don't even know how to use it. No. Because,
1: let's just go back, like, this foreshadowing Miguel Castro struggled today in Game
0: Mm 3. He seems to have lost it. People were like, he's a sticky stuff merchant. His spin rate has, like, dropped
1: ever so slightly since the stuff. No, I put up the tweet Miguel Castro, only one of his pitches, his slider, actually would benefit from added spin because his changeup is not like the airbender, like Devin Williams. It's a standard changeup. You want it to spin less, so it drops, so as we say, the bottom falls out. Same with a sl- sinker. You want a sinker to act like a bowling ball, spin less, and move heavily down in the zone. And Miguel Castro's slider spin rate has stayed ever so level across all his yeah. outings. He actually had one outing where all the pitches, and the spin rate in all of his pitches dropped sharply. But clearly that was either something in the environment or something wrong with the track man the stadium that night or just something wrong with Castro in general. Because besides it, it's level. Like you can look at the average spin rate player breakdown on Savant every single day and be like, oh my God, he's down 18 RPMs. Like he's using sticky stuff. No, you have to look at the whole season as a whole. Look at every individual outing. See where these spin rates are and where they exist and actually be able to tell whether something has happened. And even whether that something has happened is meaningful. Spin does not directly correlate with success. Sometimes it helps. It'll make your pitches move more if you're getting more active spin, more gyro spin. But we don't even know how that stuff works. And I'm getting way too deep into this spin. But it's just very annoying that everyone on Twitter is like a fucking detective now. Yeah, it's it's intolerable. And
0: I really hope it stops soon. I'll beat the Garrett Cole is a Sticky Stuff merchant with like a dead horse. Yeah.
1: I will continue to do it just because
0: it's great. It's it's That's good comedy. That's funny. But like the, like we're going to start calling Sticky Stuff out on guys like Yancy Diaz. <laughs> like, come on now.
1: <coughs> Wrong pipe.
0: James' is dying. (laughs) took a sip of his water bottle, and it went down the wrong pipe. So, YouTube viewers, you shall enjoy that. I'll take over here as James is trying to remember (laughs) how to breathe. What was really cool about this game is that the Mets beat Josh Hader. The Mets beat Josh Hader, who's who's seemingly unbeatable. 20 for 20 on save opportunities this year. Hadn't given up a single home run. And who did the home run but Jose friggin' Peraza, who is maybe one of the most Mets or maybe one of the most clutch Mets that we've seen in recent history, he's channeling his inner Wilmer Flores and just saying, I come up in the ninth inning, I drive in a run or I hit a home run, I get the big hit. I think
1: I saw a thing that was when Jose Peraza's pinch hitting, he's hitting 5.55 on the year. That's disgusting. It's crazy that this Mets team has neither the right-handed bat, seemingly the whole season, someone to hit lefties, and it's become Jose Peraza who's done it. Yes. Like where that's so random and so just chaotic and just bullshit, and it's come out of nowhere, and it's working. And we're going to ride this train until it falls off the tracks.
0: Benchmob, man. Benchmob. Benchmob continues to do it. And of course, uh, if you want to buy any merch, we dropped our first piece of merch, the Benchmob t-shirt. It's going to be pinned tweet on our Twitter. So check it out if you want to get it. Uh, Shout out to, we actually did have someone buy one. I I don't know where your name is. I lost it. But thank you for buying it. I believe his name was Nicholas. Thank you, Nicholas, for buying (laughs) the first official outside of like my dad buying it. But that doesn't count. (laughs) And then Diaz comes in. Yeah and it was not a safe situation, nope. and he stunk.
1: Yes, but I think that this narrative is being blown out of proportion a little bit. I also think that it's a different animal when it's an extra inning non-safe situation as opposed to a ninth inning of a tie game or when the Mets are losing or up four and this happens. Because that those have happened. Those are more worrisome. But there been multiple occasions this year where Edwin Diaz came in the game in extra innings. I specifically remember that game against the Marlins on a Friday night where he just... Like, strutted on the mound and dominated, and he got amped up. And today, it was going well at the beginning, at first. Very got well. Got two outs. Yes, easy. Easy. Like, so easy. And then, he just lost it. Something just happened. Mechanics with him. His
0: mechanics just got super, super sloppy. He almost got, like, a little too comfortable. And then, it seems like when Edwin Diaz, like, starts to lose it, he's almost like, oh, fuck. Like, what do I do? How do I fix it? And, like, overcompensates for stuff, as we saw when he drilled Christian Jelic yeah. immediately. <laughs> right away. It was like... Which, like, oh my god, I didn't... We shouldn't have even seen him in that no. ending He had no business being up the plate. It took literally walking everybody for Trish, Christian Yelich to get to the plate. You also gotta remember that Edwin Second Diaz... one. Got two. You caught another one? Yeah. Why are there so many mosquitoes in your house? It's the summer. That's too many mosquitoes two? In, your, in your... Two is too many. I have zero in my apartment. I
1: guarantee you can find one in there.
0: That's maybe true. You're also, you're also afraid of bugs, so... Yeah, terrified. They're <laughs> filthy creatures. But besides the fact that James is Mr. Miyagi today, seemingly... Diaz also got an inherited runner with the guy at second base, so like technically he walked the bases loaded
1: yeah. instead of like walking in a run. Yeah, but that's those are semantics. He did it was an unearned run, but he did create a situation where the Mets were losing. But yes. we've also said time and time again that in this extra anything, if you give up one run, that is fine. Like that's that's kind of like in the college football overtime allowing a field goal rather than a touchdown. You know, like, sure, you could allow no runs, and that's incredible. Edwin Diaz should be able to do that because he is one of the best relievers in baseball. His stuff is electric, and he has been dominant at times this season. But it's not really a complete failure to allow one run. It was a failure the way he allowed the run. If Edwin Diaz would have just given up a single to the first batter and struck out the next three, I don't know if we would feel the same way as him just crumbling for a three batter stretch, you know?
0: Yeah, no, definitely, and I think we have to bring this up as well. People were getting on Rojas for bringing him in in a non-safe, non-safe situation again. To which I go, "Who's coming in, guys? Uh-huh. Who's coming in?" Lugo pitched the night before. Mm-hmm. The only thing that you could have like a legitimate qualm with why wouldn't Luke come in there to face Yelich? Like he's seemingly there to get our left-handed batters. Mm-hmm. But I, I, don't like blaming Rojas on this. Like he has to go to his best arm in the bullpen. And whether you want to believe it or not, guys, Edwin Diaz is the best arm in the Mets
1: bullpen. <laughs> Absolutely, no doubt. Like. There could be some days where Lugo is, just because Lugo is that good. But Edwin Diaz, especially in a situation where there's a man on second, nobody out. He is who I want on the mound the most. And just to blame Luis Rojas for this, I think is borderline egregious. This guy has proven time and time again to be a very good manager. and A guy who's ascending. Like He made a very savvy move in the sixth inning of this game. When the Mets had a rally going, he got the double off of Corbin Burns, which either eventually knocked him out that batter or the next batter. And you and I were texting about getting a pinch runner for Pete, and I didn't think it was going to happen. And I think one of us specifically mentioned Pilar coming up to pinch run, but the Mets sent McKinney out. And that was Rojas being aware that Josh Hader was going to pitch the seventh inning, and he wanted Kevin Pilar, one of the better Mets bats against left-handed pitchers, to face Hader. It didn't work out with Pilar, but that was the exact same sentiment with not using Peraza, because Peraza, who I'm sure is faster than Billy McKinney, as I think Pilar probably is as well. But McKinney can't hit Josh Hader. He wouldn't be able to hit him with an oar. The nope. fact that he saved Pilar and Peraza kind of shows like a growing awareness of Luis Rojas. He is understanding the game more. It's coming slower to him. And he's only getting better, which is why I really don't like blame being heaped on him for a situation where his closer just didn't execute. We've
0: said it time and time again. Luis Rojas is our guy. Mm-hmm. Luis Rojas is the manager of this team. He better not be going anywhere anytime soon. He's really solidified himself as a dude who deserves to be a manager of this team. He did so great with the AAA and A AA lineup. He's still doing great. He's getting good performance out of guys. He's handling the bullpen well. Mm-hmm. Like I think Ed, or I think Luis Rojas deserves to continue to stay with this team. And I think there's people around Mets Twitter and around Mets World that want this guy out and want Buck Showalter or some other idiot. But Luis Rojas is the guy. He's the dude. We want him there. I was so high on Luis Rojas when they signed him or hired him as the manager after Beltron because this is the guy that they were essentially grooming to eventually be the manager of the New York Mets. He was one of the best minds in the minor leagues. He was the quality like assurance coach or whatever they call those now, quality control guy, which Brian Schneider is now doing, who will eventually be a manager somewhere. That's like the role where you groom your managers because that's a guy who's smart. You want them around your players because they know something. They help your team. Luis Rojas is that guy. So please stop the Luis Rojas slander. This team is not where we're at without Luis Rojas
1: as well. Definitely. I think, there's a lot of Mets fans who just cling to negativity, and they want to find something to be upset about, and we just got to let that go. This team is good, and let's jump back into how we won this game in the top, in the bottom of the eighth inning, because the fucking Bats picked up Edwin Diaz. We did yes, it. Yes, they did.
0: Against, uh what was it,
1: Bruce Souter? Bruce Suter. Not Bruce Brent. Brent. Brent Sutter. yes.
0: Yeah, Brent? Brent? Ivy League guy. Yeah, I, I interviewed him. Super nice guy. Really nice. He nice. is like a really quirky, funny dude, which you would expect from a lefty. Gave a great Jim Carrey which impression. you would expect
1: from a lefty.
0: <laughs> yeah, great Jim Carrey impression. He's also very uh, eco-friendly. Super sense. big on that. He like sells reusable water bottles. So if you're into that, check out Brent Suter. Bruce, whatever his name is. Suter's like whole cause. What's his actual name? I think it's Brent. It's Brent Suter. Okay, Brent Suter. I've come across zero Brents in my life. He's the first one. But anyway... He's a guy who's been really good for the Brewers this year, and he just lost it in that
1: inning. He walked in everybody. He did, and he's had control problems in his past. He's, like, just always been one of those soft-throwing, like, change-up sinker guys. And, yeah, he walked everybody, and Jeff McNeil came through. He did it. Needed it so badly. Mm -hmm. He has been struggling this year, specifically with runners in scoring position. And also, weirdly enough, that's his first-ever walk-off RBI for the Mets. That is crazy. And he has been struggling with runners in scoring position. They flashed it. I don't know if it was this at-bat or the at-bat before because he was up multiple times with guys in scoring position. Batting average is hovering around 100. We don't like using batting average, but that's still a scary number. Yeah, there's very few players, I mean, maybe one, who can have a
0: one in their batting average as the first number and be positive offensively, and that's Yasmani Grandal. And
1: Jeff McNeil's not that guy, so no. he needs to hit 300 to be effective. And Jeff McNeil has been injured, and missed a large chunk of the season, but he still came into this game with only 10 RBIs in the season, and yeah. I think about 150 at bats, which is a pretty troubling number, to say the least.
0: I mean, it's almost like Luis Guillerme's RBI. So I think he has one on the season has like 150 at-bats as well. Those two guys are not driving in a lot of runs. But McNeil got it when we needed Mm -hmm. it. Thank you, Jeff, friend of the channel, friend of the podcast. Glad to see him. He needed that.
1: He really needed that. Really bad. I'm I'm happy to see him get it. And then as we move to game three, he just wasn't in the lineup. Yeah, they sat him and Nimmo Mm
0: -hmm. because we were facing Brett Anderson. I I don't know. Again, Brohas is not making these lineups. We know that. Mm -hmm. This is coming from up top. I don't get it. I don't like it. I don't understand it. No. No. Stop.
1: We did the exact same thing when we um, a couple weeks ago, the Friday doubleheader against the Phillies when Dom had the walk-off single, and against Matt Moore, he sat the second game. Mets love punting the second game of a doubleheader. They love saying, hey, maybe. Dude, we can't sweep anybody. The Mets have only just two sweeps of at least three games on the season, and one of them did include a doubleheader with a walk-off. That, Friday, that doubleheader you were at, know, uh, I think that was April. The Mets ended up sweeping the series, the Phillies four games. Yes, I was at that one. Yes, and then the di- the Diamondback series with the Raccoon Fiasco. Those yes, are our only two sweeps in the season. Not since May have we had a sweep, and we continue to just win two out of three, two out of three, two out of three, two out of three. I might just finish it one time. The second Manny Pina hit that home run tonight, it was all over. There was no chance we were going to hit the ace this Brett Anderson. No,
0: Manny Pineapples, who is not a very good hitter by any means, seemingly, of course, hits another—I think he owns the Mets, by the way. I think he's another guy who just statistically hits very well against the Mets, because why wouldn't he? I don't know how we can't touch Brett Anderson. I know, like, Fuck. he's a sinker ball pitcher— curveball right he's a curveball guy
1: definitely a curveball guy
0: I feel like I saw a lot of curveballs and we know that the Mets can't hit a curveball
1: for their well, life Burns is doing that too there was a point in the game where Burns was like over 70 percent curveballs it just felt like the Mets were pounding everything into the ground but that being said
0: the Mets had a freaking chance yeah we had a shot we and we just whoo, slipped through our fingers in the middle mm. of the order shit the bed oh my yep. god
1: we shouted out Brett Brad, Brad Boxberger before this series because it's a shock that the Brewers have gotten anything out of that guy. He's been bad for what feels like a generation. <laughs> He's just not. A, he doesn't have much. No, he doesn't have much, and they get something out of nothing. But he walked three consecutive batters. Nimmo drew a crazy tough walk in a pinch hit situation. My God, does that guy have balls of steel? McNeil also drew one, seemingly like by happenstance. But again, another. I like that Rojas is maneuvering these lineups, these pinch hitters, getting guys in the game when the matchups do suit. And then VR just kind of got to walk because he was just standing there, and he just he got to walk because Brad Boxberger yeah. couldn't find the strike zone. And then fuck Lindor, Dom, and Pete all strike out. It was the tr- the ending of the three outcomes, but we just didn't get the third one.
0: Lindor missed the fat pitch. Yep, missed a couple fat pitches, yep. and then took a pitch that was too close on the black. Tough pitch, but you got to swing, especially with the base. You got to put something in play. You have to put the ball in friggin' play. Even a dub- even a ground ball there scores one. Yeah, scores one run, which we could have used. Dom had a god-awful at-bat, which oh, so Dom bad. seems to do this in, in like, these these big, big— pre- Ninth inning, he shortens up. I don't know what happens in the ninth. He figures it out. And he had but besides the ninth, he doesn't know what to do, it seems like, in these pressure situations. No, and he had a pitch right down the middle. He swung
1: out of his shoes on and went right through it.
0: Right through it. Oh, Mets were looking for the grand slam. We yeah. haven't hit one this year. They were hunting for it that inning.
1: Our whole lifetimes, the Mets seem to stink with the bases loaded. There's no, I don't. I remember so few grand slams in my lifetime. Robin Ventura, that's about the only time I remember grand slams. Yeah, David Wright, that one time. Listen to what we're saying. Yeah, what, that one time he hit a grand slam. Literally, it's not. And that was that's the first game at city Field against the Padres when the Mets gave up tons of runs in the first inning. No, what other franchise would give up tons of runs in the first inning of their new ballpark? A home run in the first pitch. And and the old city Field with the Great Wall
0: of Flushing, where nobody—it ended Jason Bay's career. <laughs> nobody could hit a home run there. It was impossible to score runs. Uh, the Padres figured out, but we're you know living in the past here. It's only ten years ago. We yeah, only ten years ago. But we had we had an opportunity to really get the Brewers back again, let them off the hook, the middle of the lineup just has to be better. It's really what it comes down to. It
1: does, but what it also comes down to is that the Mets beat the Brewers two out of three games, one of the best teams in the National League. So now the Mets have taken the season series from the Padres, beaten the Brewers two out of three times, and ended the Cubs season. Yes. That's pretty good in, in, in retrospect.
0: And we've also, you know, in our division, beaten around the Braves, uh-huh. beat the Phillies. Mm-hmm. The Nationals were kind of even-ish with them. No, but I like think they have
1: our number so far. Do they?
0: Oh, yeah, they smacked us that last series. Big time yeah, smacked yeah, yeah, yeah. us. But regardless, the Mets are beating, The Mets have beaten teams and beaten good teams, two teams that will be contending for World Series titles. The Mets have had their number this year. So I'm feeling good about this team. Game three, you're going to lose some games. It stunk that we did, but we won game one and game two, which was huge. And like you said, if you just flipped it, yeah. we're, we're riding friggin' high after this series.
1: We're cruising, and now we just played multiple series against good teams in a row, and now we have a series against someone who's not good. For the first time in what feels like a month, the Mets have a, a series against a team who we should beat. We should beat them. And Gary and Ron said it best. It's kind of like the old like football adage of a trap game. You cannot let this be a trap series. We cannot look ahead to the All-Star break. The Mets have four games coming up against a shit team in the Pittsburgh Pirates, and we have to beat the piss out of them. The Pirates are bad. The Pirates are really
0: bad. Now they do have some redeemable players. Oh, yeah, no, a couple for sure. Key Brian Hayes is sick. Yes. He's a top 10 third, third baseman in the league. I'm willing to say that cuz his glove and his bat are phenomenal. He's not been hitting great. He'll get there. He'll be Yeah, fine. yeah, I know. Oh, in the future, on base, yeah, though, yeah, yeah, of
1: course. But
0: Brian Reynolds is sick. Brian Reynolds, Brian is very Reynolds good. has turned into not only one of the better defensive center fielders in baseball, but he's also hitting for power, which is something he has not shown until this year. 15 or 16 home runs on the year while hitting for a high average like he does. He's an all-star. Mm-hmm. Adam Frazier hitting for a high average while I don't fear Adam Frazier by any means. This is a guy who's going to be a pest. Mm -hmm. You know it. He's going to do some shitty little bloop over the shortstop every once in a while for a couple hits. That are going to be a real pain in the ass. Mm -hmm. But that being said, the rest of this team is not Major League Baseball players.
1: No. So you should stop the Pirates. Definitely not. I mean, we're facing JT Brubaker on Thursday night. So tonight, probably when you're listening to this, he's decent. He's fine. Like, he knows how to pitch. He's aware. The Pirates have not named a starter for Friday because it seems like for half of the Pirates games this year, they do not name a starter ahead of time because they simply don't have that many. Then we get Tyler Anderson on Saturday and Chase DeYoung, I think, on Sunday. And wow, is Chase DeYoung bad? He might. He's really he's, bad. He's going to join that list for the Anderson brothers for us and whoever else we put on that. Uh, I think Chi Chi's on that list. Yeah, Chi Chi's on there. Yeah, just guys who we could probably step in the box against and not look like children. Yeah, no, we, we could touch a baseball against uh, Chase DeYoung. I'll try. Like, whatever. And then for the, on the Mets side, we have Taiwan going against Bruce Baker on Thursday. Stro, Stroh Show coming on Friday, Ty Lorne McGill continuing his rampant charge through Major League Baseball on Saturday, and then a question mark for Sunday, which there's been some speculation that might be Jacob deGrom. We don't know. I don't know if it should be. I want your take on that. Would you like Jacob deGrom to pitch on Sunday?
0: So, yes, I would. I'd like to see deGrom, I don't think, I don't know if you start him or if you use him as an opener. He's not pitching more than three innings at most. I would start him He's in that got- case, then. He's got, like, probably, like, 45, 50 pitches in him. Whatever he does on, like, his aggressive bullpen days. The weird thing is that if he doesn't pitch this, he has, like, nine. I think that's where I got nine days from. I think he has yeah. nine days off until his next start. Mm-hmm. So, I don't like that because he is a guy who's very scheduled. I'd rather him. You're playing the Pirates. It's not the craziest lineup in the world by any means. it sure, like, it's a bullpen. It's just that now the Pirates hitters are up at the plate
1: against you. I, I think that's very doable. And we just don't have anyone else who I feel like can fill in this day. That would be, I don't know. So, Oswald's well on the I.L., that's like a Drew Flo start game,
0: probably. Yeah, that anything. would just be a
1: straight-up nine-inning bullpen day against Chase Young. So that would be kind of gross, to be honest with you. And I think, depending on how the series goes the first three games, yeah. you'll see if DeGrom pitches
0: at all, if, if uh, anything.
1: I don't like that, really. I don't. If we, Even if we lose a game against the Pirates before Sunday, I don't want to feel like we're pressing against the Pirates and we have to throw DeGrom. I feel like he should just get some innings in because he's going to have nine days off. You know? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Like he needs to throw at some point. And he's not a he's not a baby. Like Jacob Degrom is not made of glass. He doesn't have bones of uh, skin of paper. He doesn't have osteoporosis. Like this is no. a strong dude out there. Yeah, he's a physical specimen. He's one of the greatest pitchers of all time. Like he can he can handle it. People on Twitter are like don't even risk it against the Pirates. Like getting the All Star break. No, this is not this is not like a, the greatest risk in the world. We're not like snipping the right wire. We're gonna blow up the whole organization if we <laughs> fuck this up. You've, DeGrom could face the Pirates. That's like one in the hand versus two in the bush. Win a fucking game. Like, every game's going to become very important as we move forward, and we need to do it. I will rephrase that. Not that we need to pitch Jacob DeGrom against the Pirates. We need to make sure we're in the best position to win every game. I don't want to punt this game with... I don't even know who would... I literally don't know who could pitch. cost not on the, roster, the organization anymore. Oswald's on the IL. Subaki, so Is that is he still around? I don't think they're going to pitch Subaki. That guy looked terrible. Uh, you find me another option. Find me... Oh, Nick Tropiano? Find yeah, it might be Nick Tropeano. Yeah, find me a human being with a pulse and an arm. That would be the pitcher besides DeGrom. I guess Robert Stock could be the guy, too. But he also threw today. He also didn't look that bad. Oh, he actually did look pretty good. We should have mentioned that. He looked fine. I didn't realize how acclaimed of um of a draft pick he was. He was as a catcher, right? Yeah, and he was like a, a slugger, apparently, back in the day. And he had a great quote after the game about how like motivated he was to get back into the league after he was DFA'd by the Cubs. He's like, I went on Google Maps. I found the nearest field. Threw the ball into the fence for a couple days. <laughs> That's sick. <laughs> no, this dude is a ball player, yeah. and
0: I think he has a spot somewhere. Somewhere. I don't know if the in my, Mets will in hold on to him. Yeah, I don't know if the Mets will hold on to him, but I think he's good enough to be a major league pitcher for some team somewhere. Someone could use him. He's better than Chase DeYoung, I'm sure. Definitely better than Chase DeYoung, and I feel better with him on the mound than maybe even a guy like Yamamoto. So. And we also got JD news that he's not going to come off until after the All-Star break. Yeah. If they're going to use all the rehab days, he'll be back after the All-Star break, which I think is the right move, too.
1: Yeah, at that point, like, we'll be rushing for. It's okay.
0: And then you have a very personal pirate to watch this week. Who's that going to be?
1: Well, I don't want to make it personal because I think this guy is a very talented pitcher. I don't want you to take anything away from Mr. No, he's good. Yeah, yeah he's, he's very good. good. This is David Bednar. Uh, my buddy Ross, great friend of mine from college, actually coming this weekend to catch his cousin Dave at Citi Field. But the guy's a freaking really good reliever. He was just kind of buried in the Padres' bullpen for a couple of years. He couldn't break through because of how many talented arms they have back there. And they just kept seemed to keep acquiring them. And it kept pushing him back. Which stinks, because the guy showed flashes, and he's turned out to be very good. He came to the Pirates in the Joe Musgrove trade, and damn, has he been impressive this year. He throws the fourth-hardest splitter in all of Major League Baseball, which in and of itself is a pretty impressive feat. And the little scoop I got from the inside is that this splitter was passed on to Dave from Mr. Kirby Yates. So as he was a very good splitter. One of the best splitters we've seen in this generation of baseball. So as Kirby Yates um, dissolved into baseball dust, dissipated, flew away in the wind. He passed on his greatest gift to a new young reliever breaking through, and it's helping him. Along with that splitter, Dave sits 97. He can touch 100. If you pull up his page on baseball's avant, there's just red ink everywhere. He's near the 90th percentile in opponent's exit velocity, whiff rate, strikeout percentage. Like This guy's a good reliever. We're going to probably see. The Pirates, I'm sure, will probably find a way to win one game this series. They just took a series from the Braves. When they are ahead, you're going to see David Bednar setting up for probably Richard Rodriguez. And you're going to be like, wow, this guy does have pretty good stuff. That's cool.
0: And that's a very talented baseball family, as we've learned, Mm -hmm. because Dave Bednar's brother, Will Bednar Mm -hmm. from Mississippi State, is our perfect segue into our draft preview because the New York Mets have the number 10 overall pick, and a guy that could be picked is Dave Bednar's brother, Will Bednar, who is flying mm-hmm. up boards for the MLB draft based on his performance in the College World Series. This is a guy who is a borderline first-round pick before the College World Series performance, but after he like almost no-hit Texas and had great games against Vandy, he just kept going up and up and up to the point where he might be a legitimate possibility for the Mets at 10. He's sick. He's got a really good fastball, disgusting slider, which some believe could be the best pitch in the entire draft class. Mm -hmm. Best pitch out of any pitcher. Doesn't matter who it is. Mm -hmm. His slider might be the best pitch in the entire draft class.
1: And he's he's a good pitcher. He's very, like, you don't have to fix a lot with him. No, and he has it. Like, whatever it could possibly be, like, Will Bednar, he's tenacious, he's aggressive, he's confident, he... Pitches with the right amount of emotion, which I think we see from a lot of the college baseball players, especially in the college World Series. But he just felt very much in control of the things happening around him. Like, I think back to that game three where he went up against Kumar Rocker, another Mets target who I'm sure you'll get to. And he had a very shaky first inning, coming off three days' rest in the clinching game. Mississippi State, as a university, has never won an organized, like, a team sport championship ever. Did That's t- wild. Fangrass reported that an estimated 1% of the population of Mississippi made their way to Omaha at some point during the World Series. An entire state on Will Bednar's back, the broad shoulders of Bednar, and he dominated the Vaunted Vandy lineup. No hits through, I think it was six or seven innings. Yeah, Vandy is a loaded
0: college baseball mm-hmm. team. For those of you who aren't keen on the college baseball scene, Vandy is essentially the Los Angeles Dodgers of college baseball. Every single year, they're very good. They almost win the SEC every single year. They're a College World Series contender every year. They have some of the best college prospects every single year. To shut them down is quite the feat. On three days, days rest. shut down. On three days yeah, rest. On three days rest. And to go up against Kamar Rocker, who at one point was the consensus number one overall draft pick. Mm-hmm. Everyone thought he was going to be number one. He slid a little bit because of poor performances in the College World Series. There's also concerns with some command with him, and really what you're going to get from him. Here's the thing with Kamar Rocker. You hear those negatives, and you think, why would you take him? Well, there's a lot of good reasons why, if available at 10, I think the Mets will 100% take Kamar Rocker if he is there. One, the talent is there. He was one of the best college pitchers in baseball for the last three years. Threw a no-hitter as a freshman against Duke. That was his big coming-out party. And then he had just dominated ever since. Fastball, not a particularly fantastic pitch. That was one thing that people are concerned about, that is fastball. It sits high 90s. Like He's he's a absolutely massive dude. I believe his dad was an NFL player. I don't remember what his, the, the dad's name is, but he played in the NFL. Huge dude. Also, call him Kamar. Not Kumar, Kamar. He was very specific about that, like Francisco and with Frankie. Fastball, good, but it's flat. That pitch gets hit. His slider, that's the pitch that's really, really good, and that makes people go... Hey, that's his swing and miss pitch, along with his changeups, also very strong. Still needs his kind of develop a fourth pitch. I think he throws a curveball every once in a while. That's also strong, but at times tends to hang, which is going to happen with these young pitchers. But if Kamar's available at 10, Mets will also take him. Because this was a guy, like I said at the beginning of the year, was possibly a number one overall pick. People thought for sure he was a lock there, dropped with a little bit of a down season, but that's going to happen when you also have a year off from college baseball. Some other guys that the Mets could take at the number 10 overall pick. A lot of college players here. The Mets have been a little aggressive with prep bats recently, but as we know, Sandy Alderson likes college players. David Peterson, Michael Conforto, Mm -hmm. just to name a few, some college players, even a Jeff McNeil college player. Mm -hmm. Matt McLean, guy from UCLA. UCLA, great baseball school. A lot of these schools that we're going to mention are really good baseball schools. Matt McLean's a very safe pick. He's a middle infield prospect, probably more of a second baseman. Good athlete, good speed, good glove, hits for average. Little bit of pop in his bat, not anything that you're going to go crazy about. He's essentially a guy that the Mets would take that would go high into their you know, prospect rankings right now and be used as a trade. Matt McLean wouldn't be anybody that you'd expect to see on the future of the New York Mets. Colton Cowser is a guy from Sam Houston State, which might make you go, where the hell is that? Texas school. Colton Cowser profiles a lot like Christian Yelich. He's a big, lanky kid who hits for average. The power is there, and he showcased it this year in college baseball. I think he had like uh, somewhere around 15 to 20 home runs this year, which we hadn't seen from Colton Cowser in a while. Really good athlete, can play center field, can stick there for a little bit. He's got a good bat. That's why you would take him. But of course, with college players, the development is always key because these guys are drafting them at 22, 23, 21. They've got to be able to fly through the minor league system. You take some risk when you draft some college players that are outfielders. Sal Frelick from Boston College. This is a guy I'm not particularly high on. I don't understand the hype with it, but I think we have to mention it because I've seen him connected to the Mets a
1: lot. He's five foot. Him and McLean have been connected to the Mets in every mock draft I've seen.
0: Yes, and neither of those guys are particularly exciting. When you think of a top 10 pick, you want someone who's exciting. Sal Freilich is the definition of unexciting. He is pretty boring to me. Now, maybe I'm being a little bit harsh here because I don't see a high ceiling with this guy. His floor is very high, one of the safer picks in the draft right now. But he's essentially, to me, a Brett Gardner type player. He's five foot nine, short, stocky guy who's got some nice speed plays a corner outfield spot, plays it pretty well as well, just like Brett Gardner, not a particularly great arm, hits for average, slaps the ball around, can steal bases. Very good college player. This guy came out of nowhere from Boston College. You don't typically hear of a lot of hitters coming from that school. I just am not crazy about this pick, and I'm, I'm sure from what you're hearing too, James, you're not excited about a college hitter that's just kind of
1: fine. No, I mean, based on what you tell me, I'm not very advanced in the college scouting game. That's definitely Mark's forte. And I believe everything you say, full throttle. I will take all those takes as gospel. But Freelich just doesn't seem to me to have the power ceiling you'd want from a top-ten pick. And I think about, these aren't the same players, because the guy I'm going to mention was much more prolific, especially in college. But I think a lot about Nick Madrigal, where everyone knew exactly who Nick Madrigal was going to be. He was going to play great defense, he had great speed, contact skills out the wazoo, and was never going to give you power just simply because of his size and the way he swings. And just... Like, his makeup. Like, there are short guys who have generated tons of power. I think about Altuve and Bregman specifically. But Madrigal just doesn't have that kind of stocky build. I think Frelick reminds me of that. Where I'm sure he'll be a fine baseball player for a period of time. But there's just not, the, like, the height I want a top ten pick to reach.
0: If you told me I'm taking South Frelick in the second, third, fourth round, hell yeah, sounds like a great little baseball player. Sounds a little bit like a Jeff McNeil type. But with your number 10 overall pick, I don't like it. So I'm not saying that he's not going to be good. At number 10, I don't like it. Another college player that could be really interesting, but there are some health concerns, is Sam Bachman out of Miami of Ohio. He's a right-handed pitcher who has flown up boards this year, thrown really, really hard. A little like three-quarter side army. He's a starting pitcher for sure. Throws about 98 on average with some arm side run. Has hit like 101-102 this year, which is the thing that excites people. Has like three very, very strong pitches. But he has some injury concerns, so that is what could scare off Sam Bachman from
1: the Mets. I kind of put um, Gunnar Hoagland in the category of Bachman right now, too, as being like a more polished college pitcher where the stuff will jump out, but he's literally in the process of Tommy John rehabilitation right now.
0: Yeah, Gunnar Hoagland, if he didn't have Tommy John, is a top-ten pick. That's yeah. a fact. But because of the Tommy John, he's going to drop to maybe the middle of the first round.
1: But He still could be a top-ten pick anyway, because something the Mets have liked to do in years past is take like, a bit of a safer first-round pick and then shoot over slot as the rounds go on. And Hoagland's a guy who you could negotiate with in a way to get him under slot and then take more risks on prep bats in the mid-rounds. So, again, something the Mets have done. Which I want to now lead into a prep bat that could
0: be... I don't know if it's a safer pick, and I don't know if it'll necessarily cost less, but they could reach on a guy like Colson Montgomery, who's this really big left-handed hitter, lanky kid... He's technically a shortstop, probably more of a third baseman, really, if we're being honest. I don't know how he's going to play shortstop at like a a professional baseball level, but saw this guy directly at the combine. Huge, massive kid. And like you can only imagine he's going to get stronger and bigger. The one thing that concerned me is he had a lot of topspin on the balls that he was hitting, but when he hit the ball, everyone stopped what they were doing. Like when he hits it right, I mean, he's 18, 19 years old, whatever he is, and he's hitting the ball like 430, 440 feet with a wood bat. That is really, really good stuff. He was turning heads at the Combine. He was a first-round pick to begin with anyway, but there's a chance that the Mets could go after him. Mets have been linked to him a little bit. The Mets were heavily scouting him, apparently, at the Combine as well, so that's worth noting. A couple pitchers that I want to mention. We talked about Will Bednar being that guy. We talked about Kamar Rocker. I also want to bring up Jackson Job, who is the best high school arm in this draft class, without a doubt. Throws about 95. That's where he sits. Can hit, like, 97, 98. And, of course, he's, he's a high school kid, so there's room for growth there. But his slider... Just like we said, Will Bednar's slider might be the best in the class. I was hearing Jackson Job has the best pitch of being the slider in the class. His RPM on the slider is about 32 to 3,400. For you guys at home who are wondering what that compares to a Major League Baseball pitcher, that would be the best slider at Major League Baseball this year. And that's with sticky stuff being included. So Jackson Job has a filthy, filthy slider. One of the nastiest sliders I've ever seen. Really, really repeatable mechanics that are like super compact, super easy to, you know, do multiple times. This is a good pitcher. Might go in the top five. It depends how aggressive teams want to be, but there's also a chance that he drops to 10 if teams aren't going to be as aggressive. Very, very talented guy. Also, son of a former professional golfer. Uh, The dad has like some weird name, but Job's the last name. Ty Madden's a guy that I know you talked about a little bit. Mm -hmm. Pitcher from Texas. Big dude. Very strong. Has a lot of pitches. I think like four legit pitches here. I'm not as high on Ty Madden because... I just didn't see anything that jumped off the page to me. It seems like a guy who's like, he's got the four pitches, and they all, except the fastball, the fastball's a little hard, all kind of rank average right now to a little above average. But he's huge, big, strong kid, and of course, people think that you're going to be able to get more out of him, so I understand it. Wouldn't be my first pick, especially if there are some guys on the board, but I could understand why the Mets would do
1: that. Yeah, I like Madden a lot, specifically for the Mets, because I feel like he'll be able to impact his organization relatively quickly. And the timeline that the Mets are on right now, we kind of, I want a, a pitcher who can contribute in the next three years, you know, because so I feel like yep. we'll still be having peak DeGrom. I don't know what's going to happen with Noah Syndergaard's contract. And then by that time, we'll have Matthew Allen about breaking through, I'd say. So I think the Mets do need another pitcher to be on that same path with Matthew Allen to be nearing the major leagues by, say, 2024. And I think that is why I believe the Mets are going to go pitcher with this pick. And I will say that this draft class is super weird. The last few
0: years in the draft, it has been pitcher, pitcher heavy. Now, of course, Spencer Torkelson, number one, Adley Rushman, that's who you're thinking of the last few years. But this year, you've got Jack Leiter and Kamar, and we'll throw Will Bednar in there too. Those are the three most like hyped pitching prospects that have like some really, really plus stuff right out the gate. It's not a very deep pitching class. You're getting later in the first round, second round, where you're seeing guys that are really high school arms throwing like 92, 93 hitting 95, teams hoping they can mold them into being this top frontline pitcher. There's not a lot of huge arms right now in the draft, so maybe the Mets do get aggressive because they know that in the later rounds you might not be able to find some of these guys. The last guy I want to mention that the Mets could maybe take at the number 10 overall pick again, big maybe, he might probably won't drop to here, is Brady House. First off, great name because this dude is literally built like a fucking house he's 18 years old he's six foot four like 235 and he plays shortstop and is gonna stick at shortstop which is the craziest thing he's actually got a pretty good glove he has some bat to ball issues because he is such a big dude he tries to crush some pitches he gets like a little home run happy with his swing but boy when he hits it it goes really really far as you can imagine for a you know66 foot 4 235 high schooler really really talented player. Most likely he's not making it there, but there have been some people who think that Brady House will drop because there is concern with this bat-to-ball swing and miss issue. I'm cool with it. I don't mind taking guys who have that huge, huge potential in the draft because you get 20 friggin' picks. And I would rather sell out for a guy who could be a generational all-star kind of player at number 10 than go safe like a Matt McClain or Sal Fralick like we mentioned I hope the Mets get risky with this pick here. I hope we go
1: after someone that's big, all-star potential, and we
0: don't play it safe.
1: I agree with that 100%. That's just like game theory in a way. And I also like just from talking to you and like the reading I've done about the draft, it feels like there's like 15ish top 10 guys in this draft if you catch my drift. And that the Mets are kind of in a very advantageous spot at number 10 to either take a shot on someone who could be generational talent or take a guy who's going to be a very safe major leaguer. The fact that those are both going to be options at the 10th pick in the draft is astounding and puts the Mets in a great position.
0: Yeah. What's really cool. Like you said, with like the ability to have that many guys who are top 10 ish players Mm -hmm. is that you, you wait to see who's there and then you have your picks and there's going to be somebody that you want to take. There's going to be someone that's available. That is a good pick. And that sometimes doesn't happen in the MLB draft. You sometimes get a little handcuffed. You missed your guy. The Mets probably have 10 or 15 guys that they want here. And that's a really, really good problem to have some other guys that the Mets could look at later. These are not first round picks by any means. These are just guys that I've simply watched some stuff on that I like. Second, third, fourth, 20th round. I hope that the Mets at least look at these guys and take them. And number one on my list is a guy I've been telling you about since I saw him take one swing at the Combine. His name is Ryan Spikes. Shout out to this kid. Follows me on Twitter. I've been hyping him up ever since I've seen him play. Great baseball name. Great baseball name. He is a great baseball player. On LB Pipeline, he's ranked, I think, like 195 out of 250 right now. So not particularly high. I'm pretty sure he shot
1: up to the top 100 this week.
0: Okay, yes. Well that's on baseball America, I oh, think. Okay, yeah, man. he jumped hundred spots on baseball America's rankings. Now I can't see where because I don't pay for baseball America, but he jumped one hundred spots. And I talked to JJ Cooper, who's at Baseball America there at the Combine. He was watching Ryan Spikes closely. This dude is a player. He's five foot eight or five foot nine. He's a short dude, but he's strong. He's built, built like an ox. He's very, very strong. He's a shortstop right now. Probably turns into a second baseman. But you're looking at a Jose Altuve-ish type player at that second base spot. And with a mid-round pick, third, fourth. I don't know if he's going to make it that far. I don't I don't really know. It's tough with the draft. Teams take who they want. Ryan Spikes is a guy I would love to see the Mets take. Hits the ball to all fields. Great contact hitter. He's also got pop. He was putting up some of the best exit velos at the draft combine. Going up against guys who are bigger, stronger, older. You're going up against college players. And he was putting up some of the best exit velos. Hitting some of
1: the furthest home runs. He put on a show at the Combine. I love this kid. He seems like a great pivot off of Matt McClain. To take yes. a high upside pitcher or just like a really physically mature high schooler and then to take Ryan Spikes, either jump him in the second or third round, probably be able to sign him under slot because he doesn't have that much hype. I think you are actually driving the Ryan Spikes hype train. You, you are. I, I firmly believe that. I don't
0: think that he was getting as much hype until I started tweeting about this guy nonstop at the Combine.
1: It's true and it's good that's good for him. You're gonna make the kids some money. That's incredible.
0: Yes, another guy that I really liked at the combine, TJ White, shout out to TJ, he also follows me. It's just a pure coincidence that I really like the guys that followed me, I swear to God. But they saw me hyping them up and then they followed me. They're like, oh, 30,000 followers, let's follow this guy. Met his parents, great people. They thanked me very much for tweeting about him.
1: Have I not told you this? No, you did not tell me that. I was
0: sitting down watching, you know, the high school kids play, and a parent sit down next to me they're like, Hey, thank you so much. Like, have you been tweeting about my son? And I was like, who's your son? They're like, "TJ TJY. I'm like, oh, I, I love that kid's swing. I'm like, he's a ball player. They're like, thank you so much. You like made our day. He followed you. Like he was so happy that he saw that tweet. I felt great about That's that. Amazing. That was really, that was a really cool moment. Also South Carolina people, which is cool. He's a guy who's 17. So he's super, super young. I'd love to see the Mets take this guy whenever he's available. Like he's not, he's probably not like even a first 10 rounds guy, but he's 17 runs really well. Switch hitter hits for power from both sides. outfielder corner first baseman as well maybe at some point so that's why his stock's a little bit lower is that he's not one of those up the middle positions that you crave but I like the guts of this kid and at 17 he's friggin huge and he's super underrated because he comes from a baseball state in South Carolina hotbeds all around and the University of Indiana snuck him and they got him he was going he's going to the University of Indiana if he doesn't get drafted or signed Um, Some other names I'm just going to throw out. I'll mention some guys that, like, I think have some really cool stuff. Brock Selvage, left-handed pitcher, sits around mid-90s at, like, his max, 92, 93. He's been working with a pitching group. I don't remember which one it is, but I tweeted about him, and they were throwing love that. Like, this guy has been working his ass off the last year, and his stock has risen. He's an LSU commit, so clearly he has some talent. I'd like to see the Mets look at him. James Wood is a really, really interesting player that the Mets can maybe take in the second round. He's about 6'7". He's like 220. He's a big, strong kid. Plays the outfield. Great athlete. The bat-to-ball skills are very, very, very sketchy. But he hit one of the furthest home runs I've ever seen with a wood bat. Granted, it was from a Twitter video. But if you look it up, you might remember if you guys have seen it. He's this big left-handed kid. Played at IMG Academy. Crushed the ball that was above his head with a wood bat. And just watched it. I know exactly
1: what you're talking about. Yes, yeah. James Wood.
0: I'm interested in that. That's swing alone, I go, I'm willing to take a shot on him. Bring so him I want to see James Wood. Spencer Schwallenbach, I believe he's going to, or he's from the University of Nebraska. Weirdly, a shortstop and right-handed pitcher. Throws 95. People like what he's got on the mound. Really good guy. Might sneak into the first round, probably around that 50 range, though. Braden Montgomery, another very good out- athlete in the outfield switch hitter. Edwin Arroyo, shortstop out of Puerto Rico. Very, very good glove. Has some pop in the bat that he showed at the Combine. He just kind of falls in that he doesn't hit the ball that hard. So that's where you might get a little concerned. Malachi Knight, another one of these really, really good, high-potential, high-ceiling guys. Also good name. So, strong name. Strong and name. he's a guy who's going to go to UCLA. UCLA prospects have been getting drafted up like crazy recently and have turned out really good. Malachi Knight, two guys that have no hype that I like. Cam McGee, Cameron Muller, Ethan Wilson out of the University of South Alabama, Robbie Martin out of Florida State. We got an Ohio State Buckeye here with Seth Lonsway, oh, left-handed pitcher who was actually... Hyped up as a possible first-round pick last year, but ended up not getting picked. He just, I don't think, was ready to go. He has some crazy case stuff. Met should keep an eye out on him. This is a dude who could be a very, very sneaky late pick. That is going to be very good. Seth Long's way. Keep an eye out for that. Chase Mason, who the Padres were all over there, and if the Padres are all over a guy, I want him. South or North Dakota, so they don't play much baseball out there. He's a big, strong kid. He's, like, again, 6'5", like, or 6'3", 6'4", 6'5", 2'10". He only hits fly balls. This is super interesting. He only hits fly balls, has no idea how to hit a ground ball, hits them really, really far or really, really high. So those are your two outcomes or swing and miss three true outcome guy. And he is one of the fastest players available in the draft play center field. Good prospect. Jackson Lynn, strong kid. You can see what I like. I like big, strong guys because I want high potential players. And I think that's what the Mets should be doing. The Mets as an organization have been a little safe recently in their drafts with some of the players that they've been picking, now that we have a very good major league roster, I think it's time for the Mets to take a little bit of a risky approach, take guys with more tools as opposed to the safe picks that you know what you're going to get, let's be aggressive, let's try to get some top talent here, there's a lot of good players, the Mets can really strengthen this farm system, and even use these guys to then be trade pieces in future future drafts, Whatever it's good, or future trade deadlines, whatever it's going to be, this is a very, very talented draft. And I just talked about the draft for like super, super long here. We're going on our longest episode easily. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I love the MLB draft. I've fallen in love with it since last year. Super exciting. I was money last year. I'm trying to be money again this year.
1: Cash money. Cash money. Baby. Cash money.
0: So that's where we're gonna wrap up episode number 30 of the Met's Up Podcast here. I'm your co-host, Strafneck Mark, here with James Shiano. Jeter had no range. Follow us both on Twitter. I just told you our ads. Follow the Met's Up Podcast on Twitter and Instagram at Metzed Up. Subscribe to the YouTube channel Mets Up Podcast. Drop us a rating, drop us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to us. We'll talk to you after the pirate series here. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. See you guys next time. Peace out.